I read sci-fi growing up like a lot of tech entrepreneurs do and a lot of it's dystopian and and I would read it and say, okay, I want to be a part of creating a better future, but I really like the tech like being described in here, <laughs> but I want to create a better future on that. And, and that's, that's always the way it's been with the world. We, we are agents creating the future that we want. And if we're hopeless, then it's not going to be a very good, great future. But if we're hopeful and we believe we can create a great future, then we will. Brett Hurt, one of Austin's top entrepreneurs and thought leaders, is our special guest for this episode of Austinpreneur. Brett is a serial entrepreneur who pioneered online customer reviews when he founded Bizarre Voice that went public in 2012. His most ambitious venture yet, Data.World, has been preparing for the emerging AI revolution for years and is knee-deep in capitalizing on the explosive growth AI is experiencing. We speak with Brett about Data.World's array of AI initiatives, including Archie, which is helping all of us get smarter than any of us. You'll hear some of Brett's tips for massive fundraising, having secured over $100 million in funding for Data.World. Brett and his family are also one of Austin's most active angel investors, having funded 120 plus Austin startups and more than 38 venture funds, including multiple of Capital Factories. Last but not least, Brett is a Longhorn, Wharton grad, and longtime partner at Capital Factory. The episode is recorded with a live audience of local Austin founders, so listen to the end and hear questions that the founders have. I hope you enjoy those questions and the whole episode as much as we did producing it. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. Welcome, everybody, to Austinpreneur Podcast. We're here with Brett Hurt today. Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. We got a studio audience, some of our founders here from Capital Factory. We're opening it up in a little bit to questions from you. So be thinking of some good ones. I've got a few to get us started, though. And before the, we really dig into it, though, Brett, you want to give us a quick introduction for those who may not be as, as familiar with you as, as I am? Sure. Born and raised here in Austin, believe it or not. I'm 51. So when Austin was when I was born, Austin was the size of Anchorage, Alaska today. <laughs> now we're the 10th largest city in the US, which kind of blows my mind. I think that happened last year. I grew up programming since I was seven years old. My mom, I really have to thank for that. And um, my book is dedicated to her. It's called The Entrepreneur's Essentials. You can get it for free online, but if you buy it on Amazon, then all the proceeds go to benefit female entrepreneurs through um, the Kendra Scott Women's Entrepreneurial Leadership Institute at UT Austin. That's a mouthful. Um, and my mom just allowed me to do that over 40 hours a week from age seven. So there were no such things as screen time rules. I can tell you in the Hurt household, there are no such thing as screen time rules either. Our son, all he does is program. He is massively accelerated right now by AI. 
And then when it came time for career, I worked for a little while in, in consulting, first for Anderson Consulting, now called Accenture, then for Deloitte. But I really want to be an entrepreneur, and I started my first company at age 24 while I was getting my MBA. I went to UT for undergrad and to the Warden School at University of Pennsylvania for my MBA. And I wrote all my essays about being an entrepreneur and ultimately made that dream come true starting at that age, at age 24, and never looked back. I've started six companies now. Um, the biggest to date has been uh, Bizarre Voice, which means voice of the marketplace. It's, it's, it's responsible for all of the customer reviews that you see online um, embedded inside of Walmart and the Home Depot and Expedia and so many companies all over the world. It's now worth around $4 billion. Uh, it's a private company. Um, it became a unicorn. I was the CEO that took it from inception through IPO. Amazing team members that I worked with. It was rated the number one place to work in Austin when it was small, then medium, then large. We went public in 2012. And right now, I'm eight years into a journey as the CEO of Data.World, which is a B Corp. And it's my most ambitious company to date. And it's being massively accelerated right now because of AI. We built for this moment. Like entrepreneurship is always a combination of grit and luck. The grit part is we work hard, we hire, we do all the things we did at Bizarre Voice. But one thing that was a combination of grit and luck is when the company was just a year old, we we ultimately chose to build on a knowledge graph foundation and a knowledge graph for our data catalog and governance business essentially has it, it sits on top of all of we sit on top of all of our customers data sprawl and so they'll use anything from tableau and microsoft power bi to snowflake and databricks and oracle and when you pull data in and you map data across the knowledge graph, it maps data like a, like a brain maps concepts. It does it in three dimensions. And we always thought from the beginning of the company that would be the ideal place to operate AI on top of because it maps data like a brain maps concepts. We certainly did not know when the company was a year old that large language models would be the thing that really enabled that. Um, but when we first started using OpenAI's GPT, I think three is where we first started, and then ChatGPT launched in November 30th of last year. As of this recording, we haven't even hit one year anniversary of that. This is a kind of an incredible weekend for OpenAI, as we all know. And I'm sure as people listen to this, there will be more known about what actually happened there. But we've been, we've been massively accelerated by this trend because now it's so obvious how extremely amazing the productivity lift is, whether it's coding, whether it's any type of content production, marketing content, sales content. I mean, it's, it's just extraordinary that we're living in this time. And, we find ourselves at data.world at now the right time, right place, right platform. And um, we're gonna build a really big company here. This could be a much bigger company than Mazar Voice. So it's really exciting, pinch myself. And, and outside of that, um, been married 27 years and 
love my wife very much, and we do a lot of startup investing together. So we have um, an entity called Hurt Family Investments. We, we're in 135 startups and 42 VC funds, including a lot of the Capital Factory funds. And we primarily invest in Austin, although funds, sometimes we, we use that to get access elsewhere where we don't have time. And then we have two kids. We have a daughter who's 19. Also published a book, correct? Yeah, she published her, her book when she was 13. Um, she has her own jewelry business. She has a podcast called Radiant Resilience, which I highly recommend. The latest episode is with Susie Sosa, and it's really amazing. Pound for pound, I think it's one of the best podcast episodes I've ever listened to for life advice, because she's 19. So the way she asks questions and probes to really get to like what someone learned, she's unencumbered like we are as adults. Like she, She'll just keep asking, and, and it's really beautiful. And then, yeah, her jewelry business called Radiant Jewels. And our son, like I said, all he does is program, and, and he's on the entrepreneurial path as well. Right. It's hard. And he's 14. Hard, hard to believe your daughter's 19 already. It is hard for me to believe, I, I, I yeah. believe, yeah, for yeah, you, for yeah. sure. But. I feel young, like I'm physically fit and stuff, but I, I really am surprised that now I'm at the age where I actually have a daughter in college. Right, right. <laughs> I remember college. It wasn't that long ago. Such a impressive career and what's and the first thing that stuck out is that you've been here in Austin for five decades and, and I have uh, we definitely lived in Silicon Valley for a while right and so not Philly. full full yeah. full time but you've you've been, We've been back for 20 years and, yeah yeah so if you if you could go back to any decade of Austin excluding this decade which one would you go to probably the 80s because I would want to see a lot of bands that I was really uh, excited about that I didn't get to see. Like, I, I, I really, uh, it, it makes me sad that I never saw Steve Ray Vaughan play live. That makes me sad. Growing up in Austin, right? The first ever concert I went to was Willie Nelson's Backyard Barbecue. And I think I was like three or four years old. And I was like, Mom, Dad, what's that smell? It's the first <laughs> time I smelled marijuana, right? Because it was Willie Nelson, right? It's everywhere. But it was, he was always like the hometown hero. So I grew up going to a lot of concerts, but never, never, never that. And, and there's, there's a lot of things I would love to go back and do. I'd love to have seen Joy Division at their height and before Ian Curtis passed away and, and love to see New Order back then and Depeche Mode and all that stuff. So that's kind of like, I'm telling my age, right? It's 51, like I came of age in the 80s and U2's The Joshua Tree was like my coming of age album. But, but from a tech perspective and just a Austin perspective, this is my favorite decade in Austin's history. So I'm not one of those that romanticizes about the fact that Threadgills is no longer here. I never really liked Threadgills. <laughs> it was fun from a standpoint of like, oh, there's a Janis Joplin poster and stuff like that. But it was always kind of mushy vegetables. And, and I, I, I think the restaurants have gotten way better here. And, and, and overall, like, there's a lot more to do here. I, Austin was pretty boring when I was growing up. But didn't really matter because all I was doing was programming anyways, but right, right. it so didn't have nearly as much to offer as it has now. Take time to go see your favorite bands in, in concert while, while you can. You yeah, know, you go back in a time machine. Right. right, Yeah. so awesome. I, like I mentioned earlier, I brought this, this book, which was curated yeah, by cool. uh, a mutual friend, Laura Kilcrease, and this was in, this was 10 years ago. You were the McCombs Entrepreneur in Residence. 
And I really enjoyed doing that. That was super fun. I, I was I enjoyed it when you and I and I worked with you. I know very closely. I These were great. I was an undergraduate at the, at the time. Yeah. Yes, and I got to edit this. You can see that our our agency um, put in the editorials. My first cool. editorial project. But Laura Kilcrease, uh, if anyone doesn't know, was the founder of the Austin Technology Incubator way back in the, the mid '80s, before Austin was a tech hub. That, they created ATI, and Laura certainly deserves a whole episode of her own, but she's she's a, a big part of the, the DNA of our startup ecosystem, and she was the entrepreneur in residence, and, and a lot of other things at the University of Texas, but for this specific project, the book's called Innovative Entrepreneurship, Lessons and Best Practices. It's sourced from her speaker series, and she had a speaker series. One was Money Talks, the other was Entrepreneurship Live, and our job as the, the, the book editors was to summarize the key points and, and the, the, the lessons from those. And you can see at the beginning of each of these, there's like literally like the key points. I'll, I'll, I, can, I, I definitely know that the URL is no longer active, but we'll see if we can post this online for anyone that listens. And the first put that whole thing in ChatGPT and have a conversation with it. That's right. I think <laughs> we might we could probably do that. All right, and I, our first entrepreneur that was that was featured was was Brett Hurt. It was you? Cool. So I would love to just go through. I your... remember when she interviewed me for that. Right. I had my daughter Rachel there, like sitting right at the front. Really? Yeah. And gosh, that was a long time ago. She was probably six or seven. Right. Or something. So that, I'm, I wonder if she remembers that. Right. I don't know. Even if not, I'll have to ask her. I, I imagine there's probably some good good uh, impacts on it, but. I thought maybe we could riff through your four key points here okay, and great. You know, see if there's any reactions yep. uh, of how they've withstood the, the test of time. So the first one it says, and also this will be a test of how well I synthesize them because I don't think yeah. Brett signed <laughs> off on the ultimate <laughs> writing. But capital efficiency will benefit your company fi financially and culturally. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what does that mean, capital So, So Bizarre Voice, we found product market fit really, really early, literally within the first couple of months of the company. And we raised a total of 23 million, and we had 13 million left in the bank when we went in public at 100 million run rate. So it, Y Combinator said it was one of the most capital efficient businesses of all time. It was like in the top three or something. And I wasn't, I wasn't in the Y Combinator incubator, but but they had done the analysis of SaaS businesses. And what it meant, practically speaking, was that everybody was a serious owner there. So after Bizarre Voice went public, there have now been over 70 companies started by former Bizarre Voice people. And we had been more generous than any other SaaS company in terms of giving equity to our employees, except for Salesforce. They were number one when we went public in terms of pre-IPO shares, and that, that really helped a lot because these are capitalist enterprises. So the mission was super important and still is for Bizarre Voice, but, but the, the fact that people were going to make a lot of money too gave me a sense of great responsibility. And one of the things that we did there was like every month I would have a nonprofit CEO come in and speak. It was always optional for people. But a lot of people would attend, and, and I would always tell them, if you really want to see someone very driven, like the hardest thing you can do is raise money when there's no financial return. It's all about a karmic return. 
when you invest in nonprofit. And uh, part of the reason I did that is because they were, they were going to become wealthy and, and that way maybe they would think holistically about the utility of, of money to help a lot of different causes. And, and so if you end up owning more of the company as employees, it's better than if you don't. Now at data.world, we have already raised over $140 million but the size of what we're building is so ambitious and the market for what we're doing is every medium to large size organization in the world, whether it's a government agency, a university, or any corporate vertical, insurance, banking, healthcare, CPG, you name it. Like we're in, we're in all those verticals already with big customers at data.world. So we're really trying to build a tableau size business here and it will be seen as capital efficient in hindsight, based on what we're building. The outcome. Yeah, because the outcome. But, but right now, it's uh, seen as like a very capital consumptive company, and it is. It's all relative, like Inflection AI closed their seed round recently, and it was 1.2 billion, and then they took 900 million of it and spent it on NVIDIA H100 chips <laughs> um, because they're developing Pi.ai which is, uh, and the co-founder team there is Mustafa Suleiman, the co-founder of DeepMind, and Reid Hoffman. That's a pretty good co-founder team. So it's, it's, all, it's all relative to the size of ambition, but you know, the bet that people are making with something like Inflection AI is that it will become the dominant AI platform. And, and so capital's always relative, but yeah, you should try to, Ideally, with every business, if you can get to product market fit very quickly, then you'll build the right things, you'll focus on the right things early, there'll be a much, there'll be a much better culture of customer obsession. All the great companies have been customer obsessed since the right. beginning, whether it's right. Amazon or Walmart or any other. Google was also customer obsessed. It is an engineering shop, but they came out with the world's best search engine at a time where most of the search engines sucked in hindsight, like Lycos and Ask Jeeves and all these things we don't use anymore. Right, I, I hear a lot of just tying your employees to the success of the company and, and having yeah. given them that, that, that responsibility, that agency to, to really drive it and it creates this, this culture where they don't want to overspend or they don't, they don't want to over, over budget, they want to get it just right. And you have to set the tone as the CEO. Like I, anytime I travel, I always find coach. I always do hotel tonight. I usually don't even know where I'm gonna stay until I land, drive some people crazy. But, but it's like, I'm trying to set a tone of like, hey, this is company money. And, and so that's, that's, that's part of it. But really the most important part of it is that obsession on product market fit early and that obsession on customers, which uh, if you can be as much of a customer-funded company as possible. And the first book I ever read on that was called The Bootstrapper's Bible, and it was by Seth Godin, and he gave the book away for free. So part of the reason I gave my book, The Entrepreneur's Essentials, away for free online was because I wanted to honor him and the authors of The Clue Train Manifesto, Chapter 4, of the Clue Train Manifesto is called Markets or Conversations, and I literally named Bizarre Voice after it. It means voice of the marketplace. Um, and it was a very inspirational chapter. Still today, that is the all-time best chapter of any book I've ever read on marketing, chapter four of the Clue Train Manifesto, and you can get it online 
for free. And remember, when you read that, they wrote that in 1999, and it's so, it forecasts exactly what happened with like Facebook and Twitter, now X, and Snapchat, and TikTok, and blogs, and everything else. It's really, really amazing. Do you, um, do you have a book, a reading list, or a book list? I do, yeah. Yeah, I'm constantly reading. Yeah. Is yeah. there somewhere, on, is it online where the audience could, could find it? No it's all in my book. The nice yeah. thing is when, when ChatGPT came out with their GPTs, it took me 10 minutes to just have it ingest the book and then you can converse with the book. And so that's now online. And, and it's funny, at our leadership team offsite, we were on break last week and I was like, hey, I wanna go in and just see what books it based on what I had recommended in the book mm -hmm. and then why it recommends mm -hmm. them. And it nailed it. It was really amazing. I was like, well, that's, that's the reading list nice. right there. Yeah. Yep. All right, let's go to one more of these, one or two more of these. Okay, it says, you will know your passion when you find it because you'll study it obsessively. Yeah, yeah, that's super important. Um, you know, when, when you are, are truly passionate about something, like I was at the beginning of programming, or my son is, my son started programming at age four, right? He's already been programming 10 years. And you will just do it without people telling you to do it. Like if someone has to tell you to do something, you're probably at the wrong place. Yeah. You should just want to, now it doesn't mean every day is gonna be like euphoria. I mean, there's sometimes where I've gotta grind through things that I don't wanna do. That's part of the process. But you should have many more good days than bad and you should truly find joy in your work. And I think that is the secret to life. In my book, The Entrepreneur's Essentials, I talk about in the introductory chapter that the secret to life is to live a life of meaning, but only you can define the meaning. Like you're 40, your specific meaning, and there's a different meaning for everybody. I, I, I knew from a very young age that I was meant to change the world for the better via technology. Like I felt that deeply in my soul. I'm Jewish also, so it's like, that's a concept of tikkun olam, like making the world a better place. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I knew that like very deeply. I really, really wanted to change the world for the better through technology. I read sci-fi growing up like a lot of tech entrepreneurs do and a lot of it's dystopian and, and I would read it and say, okay, I wanna be a part of creating a better future, but I really like the tech like being described in here, <laughs> but I wanna create a better future on that. And, and that's, that's always the way it's been with the world. We, we are agents creating the future that we want. And if we're hopeless, then it's not gonna be a very great future, but if we're hopeful and we believe we can create a great future, then we will. And there's lots and lots and lots and lots of examples of entrepreneurs that have done just that, that make 2023 as challenging as it is. And trust me, it's very challenging being a Jewish guy, like what happened on October 7th is absolutely horrific. But, and, and then what happened afterwards, but the, we, we live in the best of times in the history of the world. And I know that that's hard to believe with flashpoints here and there, but you know, if you could take all your possessions and go back 50 years, 100 years, all your friends, your family, et cetera, where would you go back to? And you can't, you can't come back, it's a one-way ticket. Like you're going back 50 years and you gotta deal with whatever the tech is back then and the whole goal of humanity has to, been to create a much better life, an easier life. Um, and I think where it's all going is to, like, like, 
I really believe 100 years from now, if we could go into time machine and go forward 100 years, we would not recognize the people 100 years from now. They would appear godlike to us. And if we could go back 100, 200 years ago, we would appear godlike to the people back then. They would just not even understand the access we have to food, to medicine, to energy. They, they would see the cars we drive and they would be like, oh, and they're now doing this self-driving thing. And then they would see AI and it just would blow their mind. Yeah. And, and, and we're in that exponential curve. So 100 years from now, it's going to... I don't just, yeah, and know the, how to recognize it. How much access to knowledge we have, mm-hmm. right? And, and 100 years ago, if you wanted to go figure out any basic question, you probably had to do some digging. That wasn't already oh, sure. when you had to- I was born pre-internet, or at least pre-commercial internet. And so, so I remember going to libraries and having to go through card catalogs and all of that stuff <laughs> like and my my kids have been born only knowing the internet and their kids will be born only knowing AI and who knows what AI will be like by the time they have kids my daughter's only 19 so it's Elon Musk said recently in this interview he did with the prime minister of the UK that that ever since the launch of ever since the start of open AI it's been increasing fivefold a year so Take what we have right now with uh, GPT-4 and the latest version that launched with the multimodal, and say by this time next year, it's going to be fi- at least five times, yeah. five orders of magnitude better. So I'm going to pivot here, but I'm going to use this last key point to pivot. It, it says, become a lifelong student of entrepreneurship. School is just the beginning of your education. And that ties into the second one that I read about studying your passion obsessively. And so my question is, how is AI changing this? As an entrepreneur specifically, the need to to learn will will be there, but how is it changing how we learn? Well, it just accelerates your your ability to learn. It's, it's, It's funny, like having written my book, me chatting with my own book reminds me of lessons like one thing I did on break last week with the leadership team meeting is I was like what are the best leadership lessons in the book and I was like oh that's a really good one I need to do that more <laughs> so anytime you write a book or you as a company you set out your values or your mission statement or whatever it is like you can do more to adhere to that and it's it's very common that we're not always living our best selves in any one moment so AI is just an accelerant to, to the application of knowledge. And people that think well, you'll, just, you'll just not even need to know programming anymore, I don't buy that at all. Like, like the best people with AI will be people that really deeply understand programming, for example. The best salespeople with AI will be people that really understand selling. The best marketing people would be people who really understand marketing. It'll just make it a lot faster for people to do things. And ultimately, the people that will get replaced in their job are people that do not adopt AI. The people that are early adopters become expert at it. It's just like any tool. Like, you take the beginning of Homo sapiens and, and even before that, and the discovery of fire. That's what allowed us to cook food and get to have bigger brains. And one, one of my good friends here in Austin is Byron Reese, who wrote a lot of books on AI and 
amazing books. And he's a serial entrepreneur. And Byron told me recently, he said, it's actually inhumane. It's inhumane to force someone to do a job without the latest tools. And the most, the, the most difficult kind of example of that to grapple with are like manual labor jobs. Like we used to work the fields. We used to have like six or seven kids in America because most of them would die because of disease that we didn't have drugs to cure. The lifespan wasn't that long and they needed to work the fields to, so <laughs> the industrial revolution and all these things that came along made it so much easier to live a life of riches. And I'm not saying necessarily you're, you're wealthy, but you are wealthy in every way compared to people back then. You take the wealthiest person 100 years ago and you're way more wealthy than them today in terms of your access to food and education and all that. So, you know, the, 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 most, the, the most exciting thing I've seen all year with AI actually was at the TED conference where Saul Khan of the Khan Academy was showing how he got early access to GPT-4. Because remember that it was, it was ready for developers in August of last year, in August of 2022, even before chat GPT launched, right, in November 30th. And he was able to build with his team all this custom overlay on it so that every child would have the ideal tutor that would adapt to them, and every teacher would have the ideal mentor. And if you think about what that does worldwide, societally, if every child could have the best tutor and not have to pay like I had to pay with the kids for them to have a tutor in this subject or that subject, then it creates an amazing impact on outcomes for their future. And I, 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 have, I do have money, and so I was able to provide all that to my kids. And you want to talk about a great equalizer, like we always talk about inequality, a great equalizer is technology. Like now every child could have even a better tutor than my children had. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Right. Like, that's, that's an amazing world that we're building together as much as there are these kind of flashpoints where it's hard to see it sometimes. Right. I, yeah, it's interesting we all are aware of these worldly issues in real time now. I mean, that was another difference is just the, the, yeah. the, the, the news didn't travel as far as fast yeah. 20, 30, 40 years plus. And, and that like, does make it harder in some ways because in a world of over 8 billion people, there are going to be some crazy things that happen all the time. And so in a 24-7 news cycle, the worst of humanity is going to be constantly amplified. And one thing that I really encourage listeners to do is every week you should read one of these three newsletters or all three. You should read The White Pill, you should read The Progress Network, and you should read Future Crunch because every week around the globe, amazing breakthroughs are happening in every field you can imagine, but they, they, they don't get a lot of attention. Like the child abduction story or something like that is gonna get so much more attention. And one of my friends is the founder of the Progress Network. His name's Zachary Carabell. And I was so happy when he launched it. I was like one of the first subscribers. And then I remember years into it where he's celebrated in the newsletter, hey, we finally reached like, you know, 
I think it was like 20,000 or 25,000 mm -hmm. subscribers. It took like three years. Like one child abduction story right. hit 25,000 readers like that. Um, so you have to force yourself to take in a media diet that is focused on all the amazing things happening that human beings are creating in shaping the world, or you just will be a cog in the machine of negativity. And, and that, unfortunately, is how most people consume their media. They're just constantly waiting for the worst <laughs> to get pushed to yeah, them. Right. And that's no way to wire your brain as an entrepreneur. Like, like entrepreneurship is all about hopes and dreams. The belief that you can do something motivating and hiring a team to be able to do something that everybody said was impossible. You mentioned earlier Byron Reese, author and your, your friend. He uh, talks about this concept of a planetary superorganism mm -hmm. and, and how we're all plugging yep. into this. And, and I think you've embraced that at data.world. Can you tell us more about the, the superorganism and, and yep. you know, how we plug into that in a, in a healthy and constructive way? Yeah, sure. Way? Yeah, so, so it's, it's a little bit like this thought experiment. Listeners may have heard of this, but where if, if you had an alien or a witch or whatever come down and, and cast a spell or basically force all of us to start over. We had all the knowledge we have in our head, but all the factories are gone, all the processing plants are gone, like that create, that take the raw materials and process them, like everything's gone, all the homes, everything. We're like back to caveman days, but we have all the knowledge in our head. How long would it take you to build an iPhone from scratch? And different people have different answers for that. Some people are like a thousand years, some people are like 10,000 years. So we have this combinatorial knowledge across the globe, which in Byron's book that's coming out in December, which I've, I've, I've been an early reader of, is called, he calls it the Agora. And, and the Agora is like how we're all constantly learning from other innovations that have come before. And one of the things that Steve Jobs said in his Lost Archives, it's like filmed at Santa Clara University back when Apple was a really small company, you can find it on YouTube. But one of the pieces of wisdom he said on there, he's in a very humble state in these interviews, and he said, with technology, it's just like layers of sand. You're not gonna build the next Taj Mahal. Like everything is just gonna be built on top of whatever you've built, but you are building <laughs> something that, that other people will use. And so tech in particular is the best example of the Agora because of how fast it moves. And I think it's because of how much scale there is in tech. And there, there's, again, old world tech, like the discovery of fire and, and being able to cook food. And then there's very new world tech, like AI, where it really speeds everything up in terms of us having a future of abundance. Um, so yeah, that is the way of the world. When we started Data.World, our initial premise, we always had a three-phase plan, and we're on phase two right now, and we'll get to phase three probably in two years. And we've had that same three-phase plan since the beginning of the business, and phase one was, why is it the case that there's so much data in the world, but it's so siloed? Like, data.gov had launched, but it was almost completely undocumented. You couldn't see how other people are using it. So the initial premise of the company is, Let's bring together the world's best data sets that are out in the open and allow people to work and learn from each other to create breakthroughs in cancer and climate change and all of these different areas. 
where they could be solved. And we answered the call of then Vice President Biden, whose son Bo had passed away from cancer, brain cancer, and he was he tried to create in the Obama administration the Cancer Moonshot Project, where he was like, why is data so siloed in cancer? And my mom passed away from cancer, so it feels very personal to me too. So that's like a part of the Agora, right? And and now you can just plop AI on top of all that. And what we're doing with companies now in phase two is creating their own, own mini learning environment, which is one way to think about the knowledge graph that we provide inside these companies is it's like the corporate brain. Data are just the facts about a company and its customers and its suppliers. It's, it's all this collection of facts. And the whole arc of creating data tools, like from Oracle creating SQL and the original databases and data warehouses and data marts and all that, is to be a master of those facts. And if you're a master of the facts in your brain, like you're gonna be a more productive human being. If you're a master of the facts in your company and people have access to those facts to be able to do their job, you're gonna be much more efficient, much more effective. You're gonna be just a happier, more joyous place to work. Because who wants to drudge through everything to try to find their facts? And so you can think of the knowledge graph as a giant corporate brain and the large language model you can think of as trained on more human content than any other technology in history, but it's got these childlike hallucinatory kind of qualities um, because it's just a statistical engine. It's just faking intelligence. So if you can have that kind of childlike thing, I don't want to call it bean because it's not sentient, this, this childlike LLM that's like just got a massive amount of facts and content and plug it into the corporate brain, then you can completely transform how you take advantage of those productivity tools because the knowledge graph is constantly telling the large language model, nope, you got that wrong. I know, I've got the facts. Um, nope, you got that wrong, you got that wrong. You got that right. And so that, that was the paper that we came out with um, last week. That, that paper is the first time in the history of data where it shows the power of a large language model and a knowledge graph together. And the accuracy like increases massively. And what's holding corporations back from using large language models in mass is they're worried about the accuracy. They don't want it to hallucinate. They, it's a black box, so they want it to be explainable and they want it to be governed so they don't trip up on data laws and, and things like that, expose someone's personally identifiable information or, or anything of that sort, or it gets hacked. So those are the problems that we're focused on solving with the Knowledge Graph. All right, so we will post a link to that white paper. And yeah. a few, I think you have a few other blogs on AI that are recent and relevant. We'll, we'll put in the, yeah, the description of this episode. Sort of been yeah, writing and, about all you. Right, right. I want to give a chance for the, the audience, the founders, to jump in and ask a question if you have one. Any, anyone want to go? Perf, perfect location, too, right next to the microphone. My name is Michael. I'm the founder of Entra. Okay. We're building a new professional network. So my question is, like, if you were going to start a new company outside of AI, mm-hmm. what would you start? What are the things that you're interested in or things that need improved that you would say in the world today? It depends on how young I was. Like, like if I, if, if I, I really think that, like, biotech and nanotech are going to be really fascinating. So if I was, like, been 
high school now, I would want to be studying those because the, 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 the ability for those to transform our bodies, all types of organisms, is, is really, really exciting. But it, it would depend on my age and, and, and what my time horizon was, so but that's... Yeah, I, I, I still think software as a service is a great place to be. It's a recurring revenue model. It's, it's like an annuity type business. I, it never ceases to amaze me how many things are still very manual and you can automate via software as a service. So I'm a software as a service person, so that doesn't take much creativity for me to think about. Um, you know, I'm not really a consumer apps type of person. And I think that that's a hard way to go as an entrepreneur because those are hits-based businesses and it's sometimes very hard to... I invest in startups with my wife, as I said, and, and, and we have invested in some CPG companies and some of them have turned out really well, but they're, they're very different businesses. They're all about distribution and the gross margin of the product and the quality and are you gonna make someone sick and so they're, they're, they're difficult businesses from that standpoint, but it's cool because you have a physical product, right, that everybody likes, like your alcohol brand or your yogurt brand or whatever it is. So it's cool from that standpoint. One of my good friends here in Austin is the founder of Four Sigmatic Mushrooms, which I take every day in my smoothie, like Chaga, Rishi, Lion's Mane. I'm a big, big fan. And he's built a really big business via that. But it's like his life's work. Like he grew up on a farm in Finland that had been in the family for like 400 years and, and went on this quest to find what the most functional foods are. And that's what Four Sigmatic actually means. So anyways, big, big fan, big shout out. I'm not an investor. I wish I was. Hmm. You know, that's a great company. So yeah, but, but, but at the end of the day, you really have to be passionate about whatever it is. And the thing is, passion's this tricky thing where you have to experiment and try things before you actually find out what you're passionate in. Like, one thing is I would never, ever, ever want to be a doctor. Like, I don't want to be around taking care of people in that way where they could die and operating, cutting people open. Like, like so I, I, I'm amazed. I've had operations. I'm amazed at the people. They're like, they're like ice men or women. They're just like, let's go in, do what they need to do. And, and that, that's not me. So, so you have to, like, experiment and try things. And if you have children, the most important thing you can do as a parent is expose your kids to different things and find out what their passion is and then let them do that without prejudice and try to be an enabler to allowing them to do that. Like, um, and, and, and it's never been easier in any point in time in the history of the world to do that. To, I mean, Levi, our son, had, had already watched every Ted Ed video ever produced by the time he was like, I think 11 years old, like every one. Um, and he, he's, he's very smart and he retains a lot of that knowledge, um, but that gave him a sense of what he's interested in. He's very passionate about space and creating a world of unlimited energy. And, and he got there by, I, I was lucky to get up early enough in the morning to watch the Saturday morning cartoons when I was a kid. Like, there was no streaming, there was no internet. So, yeah, things have changed a lot in terms of the access people have. Hey, Brett, thanks for all your insights. I'm Nita 
founder of Big Little AI out of Austin. So considering the environment right now and the, the down market for mm -hmm. fundraising and all of that, what are your suggestions in terms of fundraise, you think, mm -hmm. that, that entrepreneurs, I'm a seed stage company, so right. we're trying to figure out the whole fundraise thing, and there's always this balance between, do you want, obviously valuations are right down, but do you want to raise, how much do you want to raise, or do you want right. to raise more? So that's always a tricky question. I've been thinking about that a lot, like, why do the best companies get created in environments like this? I've been thinking about that a lot, and I actually think it's pretty simple. It's because of what we were talking about earlier. They have to find product market fit as fast as possible. Like they don't have money to waste. And that can be a bad thing if you fix your vision on something too small. So the most backable companies are the ones where the total available market or the TAM is really huge, but you can get to the market very quickly and you can do it with a very efficient use of capital. So looking at all the things you could start with that frame, I think is important. And we are coming out of the worst of the fears of the hard landing. And so the funding environment's gonna get better and better, but it's, I'm a big fan of Bill Gurley. It's really cool that he moved to Austin and he spoke here recently. I had dinner with him recently and I, I, think, I think the world of him and, and you know, he, he talks about the kind of sawtooth model on the All In podcast that he did with Brad Gerstner and how it's kind of risk on and risk off and how the risk on period goes up and to the right over a long period of time and then hits this kind of apex and then boom, it crashes. And so I think that we're coming back into a bit of the risk on environment. It's gonna be a little bit slow to get back to where it was, but it's not gonna be as hard as it was last year. And if you have like really good traction with customers and you surround your company with like advisors that can vouch for how your company is gonna do in certain verticals, you can show lots of other forms of traction, then that's what'll ultimately get you to that next step. And a lot of times this is surviving to get to the next step and the next step. And one of the stories that inspired me a lot is when Jeff Bezos started his company, Amazon, in an environment like this, he had to pitch 100 investors and 90, it was something like 92 of them said no, right? So if you're one of eight, pretty happy with your investment. Although one thing that people always miss with that math-wise is they always do the what it costs to buy in at that point, and they assume they held all the way up until right. today. And, a lot of people sell when the investment's at 100x return or a 200x return. In Amazon's case, you'd be like holding for thousands and thousands of x returns. So you'd almost have to like forget that you invested in it to have the, the ability to not sell. I mean, like the human willpower to not sell. Like, like um, greed is, uh, is your worst enemy with the stock market, right? Um, so, it's, but, but, it, but look, he, he, he had a big vision and he didn't, he had never started a company before he worked at a hedge fund. So this was, this was his shot. And obviously it's, it turned out really well and they thought of other businesses like AWS along the way as, as it unfolded. I don't think he like started thinking about AWS at all, right? So, so the key is that funding is a, 
is a weird thing where sometimes it just takes the right person at the right time for that to create the, the domino effect that you need to get capital to get to the next step. And it just takes sometimes one or two people to really believe in you to make it happen. So. I'm Rick Lopez with Artificial Compute. So right. we're more on the application layer, which like most people are, right? Yeah, yeah. Unless you have 100 million in funding. <laughs> right. But my question is around, like the hardest question I, I think is to answer right now um, is around defensibility of what we're building. Mm -hmm. and, and to your point, thinking of Jeff Bezos, I love the way he thought about the internet, right? And he said, I want to build a company where the internet can grow around us. Mm -hmm. And I feel the same way about AI. You want to build a company that's just going to flourish while AI grows around us. Right. And when he says, he always said, like, internet, internet, right? And I always think, like, AI, AI, like, build a product that people want and all that fun stuff. So, and that layer, the way I think about it is that our job is to take this technology and figure out efficiencies that other people haven't seen in terms mm -hmm. of how we use them, right? Yep. And then on top of it, some of the things that are important that you mentioned all too, like, like how, do you, how do you make it safe for people to use these LLMs, right? Small business owners and all that stuff. Right. So if we're all building these things around efficiency and then like making it easy for business owners to use, how do you answer the question of defensibility? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's the thing. Yeah, that's no, I, I hear you. It, sometimes entrepreneurship is always a combination of grit and luck. Always. It's not just grit. It definitely is luck too. And like at Bizarre Voice, the luck that came along was Facebook was close to the public when Brent and I started Bizarre Voice. And then it eventually launched into all universities and then eventually launched into brands where they could have their own Facebook presence and, and social commerce and all of that. And we had the right solution at the right time. Now we had a thesis that that could happen. Like if you read the Clue Train Manifesto, chapter four, markets or conversations, you read that and they predict what would happen in social because they're like, look, it's just inevitable that the best form of marketing are gonna be two people sitting across having dinner, kind of the metaphorical dinner with each other online. And people believe that much more than they will advertising. So there are like certain like human characteristics, word of mouth, where like that's gonna work really well. And we, we had Amazon also to look at like Amazon launched customer reviews. When we launched Bizarre Voice, there were only three retailers in the entire United States who had customer reviews. Okay, that was 2005. Amazon had launched customer reviews, I think it was in 1997. So from 1997 to 2005, eight years, there were only two other retailers in the entire United States who also had customer reviews outside of Amazon. So you look for, for pockets like that and you have a thesis and you really work hard to validate the thesis and then you just have to execute and you may get really lucky along the way. Like people could blow themselves up. What happened with OpenAI this weekend? If you're Elon Musk and you've just launched Grok or you're the Anthropic people or you're Inflection.ai, you're probably like, wow, we didn't see that coming because I certainly didn't see that coming. I didn't think on Friday they would fire Sam Altman. I looked at him as like he could be the next Steve Jobs type of figure um, in, in terms of the most important innovation in, in a decade or two. So look, the board of Steve Apple at one point fired Steve Jobs. So this board decision at OpenAI was the dumbest decision in a long, long time for any corporate board, but I've seen dumb decisions before. 
and that, that now creates a competitive opening, potentially, for other people to run really quickly. And that happens. I, I remember asking my good friend, uh, Michael Dell, at one point, like asking him about when HP had hired that former SAP guy, and I was like, hey, what do you, what do you think about this? And he's like, hey, sometimes you get the ball and you've got to run it really hard all the way down the field while you can and score a touchdown. And, and I always remember that advice where, you know, we got really lucky along the way with what happened competitively at Bizarre Voice. We got really lucky along the way with ha what happened competitively at Core Metrics. We ultimately did not turn out to be the number one player at Core Metrics. That was Omniture. Omniture had a $1.8 billion outcome when they sold to Adobe. We had around a $300 million outcome when we sold to IBM. So there's a big difference between number one and number two. But, but it was still a good outcome for everybody, and, and we created something that, that made its own little layer of sediment in the sand that people built on top of. So you just see your best friend is execution, and then luck may come your way. And I, I'm a big tent guy. Like, Data.World has 70 plus people on the advisory board. We have lots of investors who are super helpful. There's four of us as co-founders. So I, I believe that get as much help as you can get so that maybe you'll be in a position to be as lucky as possible. So, but execution is really the cure-all. And you're, that's the only thing you directly control is how you execute. Like you cannot control what happens with the competition. They can do all types of really smart things or really dumb things. Brett, thanks for joining us. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out capitalfactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at capitalfactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible and special thanks to Aaron Handworker who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode.